0: Howdy, church. How are we doing? Hey, welcome to grace. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, why don't you grab them at this point in time and uh, turn with me to the book in the New Testament called uh, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, you'll find it there in your New Testament. You'll make it past the Gospels, past the book of Acts and Romans. Then you'll find First and Second Corinthians. And there uh, we will begin in chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 23. And uh, then we'll make our way a little bit into chapter 2. All the way into verse 4. We continue our sermon series, New Love, uh, New Year. And this morning, we're going to be taking a look at uh, a difficult side of love. And that is the need and the necessity of uh, showing tough love. Tough love to one another in the church. 2 Corinthians 1. I trust that you're there or close to it. Let's pray. We'll dive right in. Father, it's a privilege for us to sit under your word today. It's a privilege for us to give you the fruit of our lips, the praise of our voices uh, in song to you. Uh, It is a privilege to give you the fruit of our labor as a portion of what we've received, we give back to you. And now I pray that you would help us to give you um, our attentiveness uh, for the next 30 minutes or so, uh, that you would have our full attention, that our hearts and minds would be set upon you to hear from you, um, from your altogether trustworthy and infallible word that you have preserved for us uh, and that we enjoy and we place ourselves under. Father, we have been thinking about Uh, ways that we can love one another uh, in the local church, the body of Christ. And now we come to a text where it's uh, sometimes difficult to apply, and yet it's utterly significant for us to show this kind of love to one another in the church. And so help us, we pray, to do it well, to be willing to to do it and and to receive it. And Father, may you receive honor and glory as we show each other um, all sorts of manifestations of love in the church, including tough love. We pray it in the name of Jesus and God's people say, amen. I want to share a quick story with you about a, a Hall of Fame football coach. Uh, his name is Lou Holtz, and you'll see a picture of him on the screen uh, behind me. If you happen to watch ESPN or, or are part of ESPN Game Day, if you know what I'm talking about, Lou Holtz is is a part of that. He's kind of a fixture in the college football scene, and he is indeed a, a Hall of Fame coach. And he, he once said these words. He said, discipline, discipline is not what you do to somebody, but what you do for somebody. He says, it's not what you do to somebody, it's what you do for somebody. And he had uh, an opportunity early in his career uh, at, as the University of Arkansas Razorbacks head coach. It was his first year, and uh, they were much better that year than anybody had expected. In fact, they had climbed in the polls all the way up to number six in the nation at the end of the year, and they were anticipating uh, a, an Orange Bowl matchup with the then number two Oklahoma Sooners. Uh, before the game, uh, allegations were made of an alleged sexual assault uh, from three of his best football players prior to the Orange Bowl game. And so Lou uh, Lou Holtz had a difficult decision to make. And the decision that he made was to uh, suspend those three players uh, for this much-anticipated college football bowl game. Now, they were already 18-point underdogs. And if you don't know anything about football, that's, that's quite a fair amount, right? They were significant underdogs to the then number two Oklahoma Sooners already. Now, he suspended three players, and uh, they became 24-point uh, underdogs after his suspension. Well, uh, of course, the local media there in Arkansas disagreed uh, Agreed, ate him up, gave him gave him all sorts of trouble. And uh, not only that, but some of his players did as well. In fact, 12 of his players, 12 of his other best players threatened not to play in the bowl game under protest of his decision to suspend these three players. But he stuck to his guns. He did not relent under the pressure. And uh, as the uh, rest of the story unfolded. Arkansas ended up defeating uh, the Oklahoma Sooners by a score of 31 to 6. 31 to 6 in that year's Orange Bowl, which even to this day is still one of the biggest upsets in college football history. Now, Lou Holtz displayed what I would call a tough love for the betterment both of those three players on his team and, of course, for the betterment of the team as a whole. Well, let's rewind some 1900 years. Let's go backwards, some 1900 years to the first century. And then the apostle Paul, much like the coach Lou Holtz, had a similar decision to make as he dealt with some, quote, players on his spiritual team, those whom he had led to Christ from the city in the church of Corinth. And like Lou Holtz's football players, they had crossed the line. They had openly rebelled against Paul as an apostle of Jesus. They had openly rebelled against his apostolic teaching and thus had openly rebelled against Christ himself. And so Paul had a difficult decision to make. He too had to decide how he was going to show tough love in the church by exercising discipline in the church, because what Lou, Lou Holtz says is true. Discipline is not what you do to somebody, but it's what you do for somebody. And Paul understood that. So let's begin with the context. Let's take a look of, uh, at the relationship that Paul had with this much maligned, often troubled, church there in the city of Corinth. As we put the pieces together, we see a little bit about his relationship with the people, the church, the Christians, there in the city of Corinth. And behind me, you'll see just an abbreviated outline of Paul's relationship to help us understand the context as we jump into his letter to them, known as 2 Corinthians there in the first chapter. So his relationship with them began as he planted that church. He led many in the city of Ephesus to Christ, we see that in Acts chapter eighteen, he plants the church, and then he grows the church, and he spends about a year and a half of his life there, ministering, planting, growing the roots of this church. Then he dep- he decides to to leave and to go to the city of Ephesus. There, at the city of Ephesus, his kind of next stint, he spends a good two and a half years there. And while he is working in the city of Ephesus, he gets word, he gets. News, And it's not good news from two different sources, both about questions that the Christians there in Corinth had for Paul, as well as news about problems, sin issues that the the Christians there in the city of Corinth were having. And so he decides to write them a letter. And that letter is known as 1 Corinthians. And so if you open your Bible and you go a few pages backwards, you find this letter of 1 Corinthians that Paul writes to the city to answer their questions and then to correct several sin issues that they were dealing with. Number three, however, however, as time moves on, Uh, we come to find out that the letter of 1 Corinthians didn't exactly fix all of the problems uh, that the church there in Corinth was having. In fact, new and bigger problems had been introduced, right? The issues were not settled, and Paul gets word again that false apostles, that is, men, had entered into the church in the city of, of, of Corinth and claimed to be apostles of Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. They claimed to be apostles, but they weren't. And they persuaded and swayed the Corinthian church to reject Paul and to accept them. They tried to successfully so discredit both Paul and his ministry to his beloved Corinthian church. And so in in response, number four, Paul takes what he calls in our little section of 2 Corinthians 1 a painful visit. Paul has to take action. He has to show tough love. And so he takes what he calls in 2 Corinthians 2.1, a painful visit to the city and to the church to correct them. And apparently what happened is they did not receive him. They didn't receive him as an apostle of Christ. Essentially, we, we can surmise that they booted him out and they backed the false apostles, instead of the true apostle of Jesus Christ, they essentially said, "Don't let the door hit you on the way out. See you later, sayonara, bye bye." They had rejected the apostle of Jesus. So, number five, Paul decides, instead of visiting them again, he decides to write them another letter. He calls it in Second Corinthians a severe letter. It's not, P.S., how are you doing? I hope you're okay. I love you. Hugs and kisses, Paul. It was a severe letter that he wrote to them. He says that he wrote it in great distress, 2 Corinthians 2.4. It was written to them to show them, and I quote, the depth of my love for you. He once again called the church to repent and to accept his ministry as a, a true apostle of Jesus Christ. And so, as the story goes, Paul eventually gets word from his uh, emissary Titus that this disciplinary letter, which we don't have today, had apparently been received and the church had repented of their rejection of him and of Christ and longed to be reunited with Paul. That's the rocky history of Paul's relationship with this troubled church. And so now as we begin to jump into the scripture with the context in mind, let's hear, let's hear how Paul ties his love, remember this is about love, it's a series about love, how Paul ties his love for the Corinthian Christians to his confrontation of their unrepentant sin, both in his painful visit and then in his severe letter. So I hope you're there in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 23. Let's read together now that we have the context. Paul says this I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. Verse 1. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who, who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would share all of my joy, for I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, notice, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. And that is a reading of God's holy word. So we've seen the context of this passage. We've read the scripture, let's now begin to look at it more in depth. Let's begin our biblical exposition in verse 23. So let's jump back to the beginning. Paul begins in verse 23, right? And he says that the reason that he didn't make a return trip after their initial rejection of him, remember, they said, sayonara, we don't want you, we want the false guys, get out of here, right? After his initial trip, He said he didn't make a return trip to see them because he wanted to, quote, spare them, right? He says in order to spare you. So here's the question. To spare them from what? Why did he not go? Why did he choose to not return to them? Well, obviously it was to spare them, but to spare them from what? Well, clearly I think the context shows us that Paul decided not to go back to this troubled church in the city of Corinth to spare them apostolic, disciplinary action. In other words, as my high school football coach said, in other words, he could have, quote, brought the wood. That's what my high school football coach said. I played defense. And he said, son, when you see the ball, the guy coming towards you, and he's got the ball, right? Bring the wood. What does that mean? Hit them hard. Bring everything you got, right? Paul could have brought his apostolic wood, so to speak. But he says he chose not to. He chose not to. Verse 23 again. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. He could have brought full apostolic discipline to these Christians, but he chose not to. Why? Well, to spare them, but he gives us more clues in verse 24, a a helpful correction in verse 24 about the use of his apostolic authority. Notice what he he says in verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, not that we lord it over your faith, but in contrast, we work, what church? With you. We work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. Now notice, he says that I didn't bring my apostolic wood to spare you, but instead, instead, we don't, Lord, we're not lords over your faith. We work with you. We work beside you. He says he didn't want to be a spiritual dictator who ruled over them, but he wanted to be one who came alongside them to work with them in their walk with Christ. Right. So I didn't bring the wood. I, I wanted to rather come alongside you to encourage you in your walk in faith with Jesus, right? And notice, what was he working with them towards? What did he want to move this unrepentant, rebellious church? What did he want to move them towards? What was his goal, right? Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your what, church? Joy. Joy. We work with you for your joy. Notice the connection. It's supremely important, right? If the Corinthians repented of their habitual, unrepentant sin and allowed Paul to come uh, alongside to work with them and not over them, if they did that, then the end result would be their what? Joy, right? The end result of them repenting of unrepentant sin and rebellion would be joy. Joy, joy, because the Christian that willfully seeks obedience to Jesus and his teachings seeks his or her joy, right? But the Christian who willfully refuses it diminishes his or her own joy. Church, mark it down, mark it down. A rebellious Christian can never be a joyful Christian, okay? Mark it down, a joyful Christian. Christian will not be a rebellious Christian and a rebellious Christian will never be a joyful Christian because joy for the believer comes with following Jesus, right? So Paul wanted them to be joyful and he wants us to be joyful too by being obedient to Christ. So he says in chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, he says that he decided not to come to them again to visit them a second time in confrontation with personally, because if he did, and he found them to be still rebellious, and still unrepentant, doing so would grieve him. This is a, in Second Corinthians, we see Paul's pastoral heart, unlike any other book in the New Testament. He says it would grieve him if he found them in that state. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? So, rather than visiting them again, right? In verse 3, he tells them that he decided to do something different. He decided to write them a painful, severe letter of rebuke, calling them to repentance and faith in Christ and acceptance of him in hopes that it would soften their hearts so that when he did come to visit them again, that he would rejoice Because they had turned from their sin. Notice what verse 3 says. I wrote you as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those whom should have made me rejoice. And then he says, church, I, I had confidence that this letter would work. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. Notice the tail end of this verse, right? He adds at the end that he had confidence in them that they would turn from their pursuit of sin and thus share in his joy. That is the joy of pursuing obedience to Christ. And now in verse 4, we come to the crux of the issue. This is where I've been moving us to. Why? What motivated Paul both to visit this church initially and then to write a letter of rebuke secondarily. What motivated him as a Christian to confront his brother and sisters in Christ, unrepentant, habitual, rebellious sin? What motivated him to do this? Did he want control? Was he simply trying to manipulate them? Was it some kind of legalism or rule keeping that he just wanted them to toe the line? Was it to maintain his own power, his own authority? Was it to show that he was more spiritual than than them by correcting them? Was Paul somehow trapped in an old, outdated, worn-out morality of his day and time that the first century was quickly moving past? No. What motivated Paul? What motivated Paul to call his brothers and sisters in Christ to repentance, and to obedience. Well, we see very, very clearly in verse 4 what his motive was. Let's look at it together. For I wrote you out of great distress. Again, notice how Christians are supposed to feel when their brothers and sisters are caught in unrepentant sin. I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, Paul loved these men and women. He loved them. It grieved his heart. His his eyes were filled with tears as they ran down his face to even consider the fact that they weren't obediently following Jesus. It pained him. I wrote with many tears referring to this letter that he wrote. And here's the crux. Not to grieve you, but... To let you know the depth of my love for you. Okay, let's just pause and let that sink in. Did you hear what Paul was saying? Paul wrote a letter to expose the Corinthians' sin and to call them to repentance. And he calls it an act of hate. Shake your heads, no, no. It's not an act of hate. What does he call it? He calls it an act of of love, Why? Well, the answer is, is fairly simple. It would be completely unloving for Paul and for us to allow brothers and sisters to remain in rebellion, unrepentant, habitual sin because all sin ultimately is harmful to us and it's harmful to the church and it's not glorifying to God. All sin destroys us either now or later. All sin hinders God's design and his desires for us. Right? And so Paul says, I've done, I've showed you some tough love, church. I've visited you. You've rejected me. You broke my heart. And then I wrote you a letter because, oh, tears streaming down my face because I love you. I love you. And I want you to follow Jesus as I pursue following Jesus. So, we've seen the context of the text, we've seen the text itself. And we've briefly had an exposition of the text. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to transition because this is just one example of several texts that we see in the New Testament of the Christians in the churches, the local church's duty to help bring about unrepentant, rebellious, hard-hearted, sinning Christians back to the faith. The New Testament has much to say on what is commonly called known as as church discipline. Tough love. And here I just want to give a brief summary of what the New Testament has to say. Uh, Volumes have been written on the subject. I did my dissertation in seminary. Long, well, it wasn't that long, but it was long, right? Not that long, but it was long. Lots of things in the Bible on this. So this is really brief. It's kind of a bird's eye view, right? What does the Bible have to say about this issue about what Paul was doing in the Corinthian church. We have a full statement on the subject as a church in our policy and procedure manual. It's out on the Welcome Center if you're interested. But here's a, a, a real brief summary. What is uh, the purpose, the practice, the process, and the protection of church discipline? First of all, ri- really quickly, the purpose we see in Galatians six one. It's on the screen behind me. The purpose of any act of discipline in the local church is the ultimate restoration of the Christian to fellowship with God and to fellowship with the church. Brothers and sisters, Paul says in Galatians 1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore, there's our word, should restore that person gently. But Watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted, so what is the goal? What was paul 's goal in visiting this church and riding the church? His goal was not to beat them down. His goal was to restore them so that they would be spiritually healthy in relationship to God and in relationship to fellow Christians. What about the practice? Galatians six one I think also tells us a little bit about how this is supposed to be done simply speaking. It's to be done by those who are spiritually mature. It's to be done in a spirit of gentleness, and it's to be done without hypocrisy. That is, if I am habitually watching pornography on my phone or on my computer, and I know it, and I don't care what anybody says, then I'm not supposed to be the one to call you out for that, right? Without hypocrisy. Notice Galatians six one again. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, Here's the first part, those who are spiritually mature. You who live by the Spirit, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person. How? Harshly? No, gently, right? With gentleness. And then Paul warns us, but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. That is without hypocrisy. So there's the purpose, right? There is the practice of it. But then there's the process, and we get the process From the lips of none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus gives us a four-step process. Here's my summary of it. It begins with a private meeting with the brother or sister. If they refuse to repent, it moves to a private meeting with witnesses. Then if the person refuses to repent, it leads to a public announcement to the church if they persist, which culminates in a public exclusion. Notice the words of Jesus. In verse 15 through 17. If your brother sins, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that, quote, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, Jesus says, tell it to the church and... If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Friends, so much could be said. It's a sermon in and of itself. But we have the purpose of it. We have the practice of it. We have the process of it. And then notice the protection that it provides. In 1 Timothy 5.20, the context of 1 Timothy 5 is the discipline of an elder. But I think the principle applies. Paul tells us that it provides protection against what I'll call copycat Christians. Notice. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone. And here's the purpose. It provides protection. So that the others may take warning. You know, the great NFL football coach. It's a football kind of a day, right? Forgive me. I love football. Don Shula, he is, a, he is he used, a longtime head coach of the Miami Dolphins. Uh, a story is told about when a reporter um, was approaching him about a, 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 how he and his coaching staff handled a particular mistake that one of his players made. He, he said this, and I quote, he said, we never let an error go unchallenged. And then he said this, uncorrected errors multiply. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. He says, uncorrected errors among the elders Multiply. So handle it, Timothy, right? So we've seen the purpose, and we've seen uh, the process, we've seen the practice and the protection. Let's close our time by thinking about applying this text to our lives. What does this mean? It can mean a lot of things, but I'll, I'll suggest to you three things. Number one, we collectively, we must be a church willing to practice church discipline. Number two, we must be Christians, individuals, willing to participate in this process. And number three, number three, we must not buy the lie that correcting sin, unrebellious, habitual, unrepentant sin, is not loving. So let's begin with number one. We must be a church, collectively, willing to practice church discipline. Unfortunately, many churches in our day refused to do this. They refused to define sin as the Bible defines it. They refused to take passages like this and numerous others seriously. The early church fathers, it's fascinating to me. Do some reading. The early church fathers, um, in the first and second centuries in particular, they wrestled with the question, what is a legitimate biblical church? What, What constitutes a real New Testament church? Uh, they wrestled with this question, and they came up with three answers. Well, number one, they have to hold to apostolic doctrine. That is, they must believe what the Bible says, to, to put it simply. Number two, they must practice communion and baptism, the two things that our Lord taught us to, 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 to do. And then, you want to take a guess what the third thing was? The third thing was that they said the church must practice some form of discipline. Sadly. In American evangelicalism today, most churches only have the first two, if not just one. Greg Willis wrote to this, and he said that many Christians in the past, quote, to many Christians in the past, quote, a church without discipline would hardly have counted as a church at all. John Dagg adds, and this is, this is powerful, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. So friends, as a Bible-believing church, we must be willing to participate in this. Number two, we must be, as Christians, individuals, willing to participate in this process. So we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to participate in the process? First of all, are we willing to, to, to go to a person, a friend, a brother, a sister, a neighbor, a Sunday school partner, someone in your ministry? Are you willing to go to a person in private after witnessing a repetition of rebellious, unrepentant sin, as Jesus teaches us? Are we willing to do this? I'm not talking about the kind of Christian who struggles with a particular sin, but is striving to overcome it. Because I don't know about you, I'm in that category, right? I struggle with the same sins over and over and over. Pastor, confession time. I don't know about you, I do, right? Right? Um, I'm not talking about that. We work, we repent, we ask for forgiveness, we pursue obedience, right? Not that kind of Christian, right? But the kind of Christian that openly flaunts in utter rebellion to the Scriptures, either refusing to call a particular act sin, as the Bible does, or refusing to fight against this. They're rebelliously pursuing what the Bible clearly says, is harmful, right? The other day, to maybe illustrate this, <clears throat> the other day um, it was it was pickup time. So the way typically uh, the evening goes in our household, basically we've got dinner, we've got clean up, we've got uh, bath time, we've got story time, uh, and then we have clean up time. And maybe not in that particular order, but generally though, those are the elements that go through my household on any particular day. But there's always Cleanup up time. Yes, there's always clean-up time because mom and dad don't like dirty houses uh, and toys scattered everywhere. So there's always a clean-up time. And we try to make it fun, throw in some music, encourage the kids to pick up their mess that they made throughout the day. And typically, they're fairly cooperative with this. In particular, uh, Piper, my second daughter, usually is very cooperative. She's the most cooperative. Uh, but uh, on one particular night this week, for whatever reason, uh, she did not want to participate in pick-up time. And so as the other kids were picking up, uh, Piper said, I don't want to pick up. Piper, go pick up. I don't want to pick up. Piper, you made the mess. It's time to pick up. I'm not going to pick up. And at that point, my wife uttered a threat. It was not an apostolic threat, but it was a threat from a mom. She said this. She said, Piper, if you don't pick up right now, you will have no toys tomorrow. To which she pondered for a moment, and her little lip defiantly kind of went up, which is very uncharacteristic, kind of little lip puckered up, and she said, fine, I don't need toys tomorrow. Oh, (laughs) you think Paul had some apostolic wood? Here we go. (laughs) Thankfully, it took her about five seconds to change her mind, and she started to pick up. Uh, as I started to move towards her, and she changed her mind, right? She repented quickly, okay? It didn't take a visit, it didn't take a letter, she repented uh, rather rather quickly. Um, friends, that's the kind of attitude that the Corinthians had. That's the kind of attitude that, that Paul is talking about. When we see a brother or sister with this kind of attitude towards sin, then we humbly, gently approach them. So are we, are we willing This is hard. Are we willing to do that? Secondly, are we willing to be approached, to hear somebody out if they bring something to light in our lives that they have witnessed and they're concerned about it? Are we willing to listen to them? Friends, as a church, we must be willing. As Christians, we must be willing. And third, and this is really where um, the heart of this sermon is. And so we'll close with it. We must not buy the lie that to correct, as the Bible says, sin. We must not buy the lie that this is in any way unloving, right? The culture tells us this. The culture, and sadly, even some Christians, uh, even some pastors, even some books, tell us that this is not right. Let's not buy this lie that the culture is selling. To call any, the culture says to call anything wrong is really the only sin, right? But friends, let's not buy this lie. Owen Strzok, in one of his books, said this. And so we'll close uh, on this. He said, love is not just happy smiles or pleasant words. A critical test of genuine love is whether we are willing to confront and discipline those we care for. It's true in any phase of life, including church life. He says, nothing is more difficult than disciplining a brother or sister in Christ who is trapped in sin. It is always agonizing work, messy, complicated, often unsuccessful, emotionally exhausting, and potentially divisive. He says, this is why most Christian leaders avoid discipline at all costs. But then he says these uh, great uh, five words. But that, he says, but that is not love. That is not love. Friends, let's not buy the lie. I'm going to close with a story from a a pastor who pastors the Roscoe Evangelical Free Church in Roscoe, Illinois. I don't know if you've ever been to Roscoe or been to his church, but I came came across a a story that he penned that was compelling to me, and we'll end with this. He writes this, about two and a half years ago, we had the sad experience of disciplining a man by removing him from membership for repeated and unrepentant adultery. He says, We followed the guidelines of Matthew 18, and his response was, and I quote, I know what I'm doing. I know what you have to do. So do whatever you must, because I don't care. I plan to never darken the doors of this church again, end quote. The pastor writes, He proceeded to pursue divorce, while his wife continued to attend church, often with many tearful prayer meetings. He says at cell groups, we often would pray to God, asking God to do whatever was necessary to open this man's heart and eyes, to bring him back into a right relationship with himself and with his wife. Last August, Pastor writes, this man called me and asked if we could meet. At my office, he threw himself on my shoulder and wept bitterly as he confessed his sin. He said the hound of heaven had been on his trail for nearly two years, and he could not take it much more. He set aside his divorce and sought to renew his marriage. Even his wife, who said that she probably never could trust him again, sought to renew his marriage. This is what happened, the pastor wrote. The man was active in the Army Reserves, and as it turns out, his unit had been sent overseas to process the bodies of the military men who died in Iraq, to prepare them to return to the States. He writes, God's hand was working in his life as he confronted on a daily basis the brevity of life and the permanence of eternality. Pastor writes, Following this tour of duty and upon his return home, he met with the elders, confessed his sin, asked to be forgiven of his arrogance and of the impact that his life had on the local church. What a joy, he writes, to announce at the congregational meeting after two and a half years that discipline against this man had been lifted and that he had been restored to membership and fellowship. I am reminded, he closes with these words, when we do things God's way, he doesn't always respond in our timing, nor with the short-term results we desire. But his way is always right, best, and true. With praise, the whole church got to see God at work, restoring both the man and his marriage. Friends, Lou Holtz is right. Lou Holtz is right. Discipline is not what you do to somebody it's what we do for somebody. It's not contrary to love. It is an act of love. It's showing tough love. May we, be do, may we be willing in whatever capacity that may be to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would help us as this is a tough subject and we have many reservations, But we as followers of your son who submit to your word wish to do all things well, even showing tough love. And so help us, we pray, to do it well, to do it right, and not to believe the lie that it is somehow opposed to love. Father, is it an act of love to those whom we deeply, deeply care for? Give us grace and protection, I pray, in the name of Christ and God's people said, amen. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. I want to remind you, lots of sign-ups at the Welcome Center. Check them out. See you next week.